so this one time again. I had my life changed. In fact, I've had my life changed by a role-playing game twice. The first was a barflarp where I met my wife. It introduced me both to my wife and the concept of LARPing. It was exactly the game I was sold on. We went on adventures, fought monsters, and got to make interesting, world-altering decisions. The second game that changed my life was the one where I met Ryan and Carrie. The game had serious problems. It had too many STs and too few players. It was nominally a vampire the Requiem LARP, but the head storyteller was constantly going off the rails with weird plots and monsters that the players weren't equipped or interested in dealing with. The stories were rarely the sorts of political or moral stories that vampire games thrive on. The NPCs could be overbearing, and all the plots were railroaded. The rest of the staff was good. They played their roles well, and they did everything that the head storyteller asked. They found sites, they recruited players, and they helped develop the sorts of plots that he wanted. It was still a terrible game, and I was the head storyteller. This game changed me for two reasons. I met two friends, and I ran a terrible game. Other than my game falling apart, it became a great experience. I learned several important lessons. The most important of them was that if you sell your players on a vampire game, that is what you should run for them. Run the game that you told the players you were going to run. All right, let's roll for initiative. that helps you level up your role-playing game. Tabletop, LARP, mush, and everything in between. We're not better gamers than you. We just all have different experiences to share. And maybe we can help you have more fun at your game. Because the only way to win at a role-playing game is, is to, to have, have fun. fun. That was good. We're, we're getting, getting yeah. yeah, we're getting better. We're, we're going to dial it in. Bozo button for you guys. So, uh, I guess let's just go ahead and tell everybody who they're listening to. You're listening to... Uh, a curmudgeon, a legend, and of course, the favorite. And with the longest fingers. I am Ryan. I'm the curmudgeon. I'm Carrie. I'm the legend. I'm Jason, the favorite. And do you have the longest fingers? I do I, have the longest that's fingers. That's creepy. Well, I measured while you were asleep. <sighs> that's even more creepy. <laughs> well, what's new with all of you? It's been it's been a week since we've hung out. Carrie, what have you? What's new in oh. the the world of the legend? Oh goodness. Um. So I'm having a lot of studio drama right now. I had to move my studio because uh, the organization that was helping is not helping anymore. This is your art studio? Yeah, my art studio. Uh, so I've moved, and I was hoping to have that all completely done, and now it's not all done, so now I have to go back, and there's all kinds, kinds of... There's nothing worse than art drama. <laughs> No, warp drama can be pretty good. No, because yeah. artists are all drama bombs. Like that's like part of being a an artist. Have you met gamers? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> What's, um, what about? Well, hold, hold oh, on. Oh. I've, got, I've got more. Oh. I Was know. there angry typing at your mush? Uh, no, but I'm actually prepping for a huge scene this week. So like, oh, that's that, kind yeah. of that's that's been going on. And I didn't actually have my lark this weekend. Because because uh, your art studio was the location was the location at. and because I was having to concentrate on moving, I wasn't able to find a new uh, place. All we right. don't want to play more Daylight Vampire. Oh, absolutely! Yeah. Let's do, everyone would just like ride around. Everybody the loved that, <laughs> right? Yeah. What about you, Jason? What's new in your gaming world? In my gaming world, nothing. I've been working uh, 
at the outage right now, so I can barely read, much less Jason uh, has, do anything. Jason has one of those incredible jobs where he sits around and has like months off of work and does nothing, and then he goes into work and works like 18-hour days uh, for six months straight. Well, I couldn't quite do 18-hour days, <laughs> but I could do 13-hour days, and it's not fun. No. So you make like all of your money in half the year. Uh, yes, yeah. If I make all my money in about six months of the year, and then the rest of it's just pennies. So this out. is so this is your work time. So this things is are my crazy. work time. Yes. So we're lucky to even have you here today. Right. You might say that we had to do a lot of extra work to make this happen this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> you don't say. Yeah. So what are you even doing, Ryan? Well, I'm. We're still. I'm still working with my buddy Ashley on the gun belt. Um, we are struggling still to figure out um, a little piece of mechanics, but hopefully we are very close to having that done. Um, the hope is that it will work itself out and we'll be able to have some sort of little preview jump start in print before Lexicon in a couple weeks. So we'll see. If that happens or not. Okay. I don't go to as many conventions as y'all. Where is Lexicon? Lexicon is in Lexington, Kentucky. And it's actually the first time we've been to Lexicon, but it's a pretty big gaming convention as I understand it. Oh, cool. Uh, Carrie is going to have her artwork there. I am. In the vendor hall. Cool. So she's kind of also prepping for that. And, um, you know, I hope to go and I've got some friends that are very old friends, uh, both in time I've known them and in age. Cool. <laughs> because I consider myself old, and so they're like my age. Uh, but anyway, we're we're on the curmudgeon, and my gaming friends are so old. Oh dear. So they'll be there, and we're gonna we're gonna play, and hopefully, I think we may even do a special a special podcast recording while we're there, uh, because one of them is doing a whole bunch of convention game tabletop game running for a company, and so I think that might be an interesting yeah, thing. You should to definitely do about. that. So. And since you're going to be working yeah. 18 hours a day. Right. <laughs> I heard it was 37. It's, and sleeping too. 37 yeah. hours a day. So there you go. Well, today's topic is run the game that you say you're running. So let's go ahead and move the combat rounds. Run the game you say you're running. Jason, why don't you tell us a little bit about the time you were running a terrible game? Let's see, it was well over 10 years ago now. In a world where games were terrible. I always remember when it was based on how old Dakota is. Because (laughs) Terry was pregnant with Dakota, and I made a joke about the way you were walking. No, you made it because I, I had my hands on my belly. Right, right. And you said, I said, people will think you're pregnant like that. And you're like, I'm like eight months pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, ah, should, ah. I, w- I was, to be clear, I wasn't upset. No, that's how I knew we were going to be lifelong friends. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it always surprises me that that whole, are you pregnant or just fat misconceptions always even still exists because think about this it only goes one direction like you never walk up to a pregnant woman and are like boy you sure are fat well to be fair you don't do that no (laughs) one should walk up to anyone and say boy you're fat i'm just saying but there are people who walk up to to overweight women and say so when are you due to be fair people have asked me that too when are you? Due? Yes. I mean, I feel like it's coming any yeah, moment. It feels like it sometimes. You are ready to burst. Yeah. 
<laughs> so anyway, at that, uh, wow. at that game, the real problem was that I had been a storyteller for Changeling for a few years before that. Well, t- probably two years. And I like the way you, uh, we always always blame it on White Wolf product. No, no, no. The real problem was Changeling. The real problem was not Changeling. The real problem was that I had come from a, uh, a Bofferlarp background. So, you know, it's very different than Vampire. And though I'd played a lot of Vampire over the years, and my tabletop Vampire game that I run, I think was okay. Because everybody that I ran that game with, we all decided as a group to, to turn it into a LARP and bring other people in. Uh, that was one of the great things about the Requiem system was it was designed to translate from tabletop to LARP very easily. So it seemed like an obvious choice. Uh, that created a couple of mistakes. One, it meant that we were too emotionally tied to the NPCs and the characters that we had played. So your your characters all became the NPCs? They became the NPCs largely. Uh, there was a couple that we added, but a lot of our uh, characters became NPCs. You know, Vampire is a very dark kind of uh, emotional game. It's supposed to be. It can be dry and political, too, and that's that can be good. But what it can't be is an action-adventure game. And I frequently was running it like it was more of an action-adventure game. There were plots where, you know, it was literally go fight this thing, investigate, go fight this thing, and... Almost Monster of the Week. Very Monster of the Week. Uh, and we were always trying to be really clever, it sounds terrible to say, but I really hate clever plots. <laughs> because you want your you want your NPCs to be clever. You want your players to get to be clever. Right. But to make that happen, your plots can't be very clever. It, like, it doesn't sound right, but it, but it sort of is. Uh, you I, can't set up a joke with a joke. That's right. That's right. Uh, I recently read a friend of mine was posting on Facebook about clever plots, and uh, he didn't say clever plots, but he said... Uh, and this was Nick Riley, by the way. He's a he's a really cool dude. Name drop. He said, he said, every layer of of intrigue and plot that you put between what it's really about and the player, that's one less opportunity for them to have emotional scenes because they've got to figure out. Oh, okay, I can't do anything till I figure out what's going on, and if that takes them six months a year, two years to actually figure it out, well, they can't get to the drama. You've kind of tied up their investment. Right. Yeah. And they they don't even know if it's something they're going to like yet. They don't even know if it's, uh, if it is interesting. It right. could turn out to be dumb, but it's better to be interested in a dumb thing than spend six months thinking it's a smart thing. Because it's <laughs> never going to be, the reveal is never going to be worth what you put into it. Or what's even worse when there isn't a re- reveal. Right, right. Because I, I remember in the Vampire game you ran, you there was some plot that you had recorded a bunch of clues. Right. Yes, so, I forgot about that. <laughs> so, yeah. like, you know, you you find this link online and watch it, and there's a video, and, like, somebody says somebody's name. or I don't remember what it was you all You had about. to have too much information to know what was going on in the videos. Right. And there was never a way to get all the people who had the information they needed to the videos because it was two different groups and at the time we it's thought it was hilarious because your LARP was transmedia yeah it was transmedia <laughs> uh, we we were trying to be too clever now there's some really cool ideas that I got from that later but they were better hopefully they were better used when I used them the, the next time like I did 
a plot where there were recordings, and I just made sure that everybody had access to the recordings. Yeah, everybody heard it. Everybody heard it. Yeah. Therefore, if you had the piece that was important, you had a chance to have a moment. And I do remember the second time you ran that, you also gave us um, a piece of paper with everything. With the words on it, yes. yes. <laughs> because it was like, you get so excited when you hear something like that. You're you like, it. wait, what What was just, yeah. my character is smarter than me. What, what, what was just said? Or you're, as a player, you're so excited about, you know, I mean, it's essentially it's a prop. Right. You know, you're so excited about the prop that you were just given that you don't pay attention to it the way you would if you were actually in character watching yes. it. So Another so, big problem that I had, and this we'll wrap up after this so we can get started, was I did this really complicated thing where the, the prince and a couple other people were, were actually the bad guys and were staging all these fake attacks, which I, that's not in itself bad, but the problem is is that when we finally had the big reveal... It was only for like three players, and the whole rest of the game had to sit around that night while we ran combat. Yeah, right. and I know that was boring because I saw that y'all got crazy bored because y'all weren't one of the three players. <laughs> <laughs> We're very selfish. Yeah. Well, it's fine if half the game gets involved, and then there's a little something for everybody. But, else. Yeah, if you have your but, other storyteller run something else, then so that's fine. what was the game that you said you were running? I said I was running a vampire the requiem game, which is very political. Uh, it's actually you, even more political than Vampire uh, the, masquerade. the Masquerade. Right, because there's a lot more divisions. Uh, you know, you've got the five sects instead of three. The five sects are all supposed to interact with each other uh, and have political drama. And they're supposed to be the ability to hold more positions at different levels of, of game. It's hard to explain without going into an hour of right. what's the difference between Vampire uh, games. But the real... <clears throat> The real problem is, is that I, I miss that. You know, I I didn't even think that I should be running a very political game. So, what was the game that you were actually running? I was running an action adventure game. You were running Changeling. I was sort of running Changeling because there was lots of things that uh, I thought it was really smart that there was no obvious solution, which is more acceptable in Changeling because it's a you know it's a game about imagination and making stuff up and right. things like that. And that was a that was a big mistake. So, have, Carrie, have you ever not run the game that you said you were running? I'm sure I have. I mean, obviously, she's run terrible games. Uh, terrible. <laughs> so terrible. No, I mean, I, I actually thought about this for a while. Um, probably my, my biggest uh, thing that I can contribute, because honestly, I started like thinking about the games I ran, and I think at least, you know, when I run Werewolf, I think I run Werewolf. I right. heard you run tea parties. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> that's a different... That's a different. That's a different episode, Different really. episode. So, um, I, I'll touch on that just for a second. What happened was, uh, a very long time ago, I started running Werewolf. The area I was uh, running in, all of the other storytellers were, were guys. And I tended to run very emotional games. Uh, you know, there was a good, there was a bad guy, there, were, there was combat and all that, but I also had the bad guy send mean notes to the players about their beloved that he killed and you know all these things to get werewolf the apocalypse has the has the ability to be a very emotional action game yes yes uh most people tend to just run the action game part but it has it has all of the tools to be an incredibly personal right emotional and so they don't realize that I know they said these things about me, but the other storytellers 
that were in the area area used to tell everyone that my game was a tea party, you know, because the girl was running it and everyone sat around talking, talking about, about their, their feelings, feelings right? <laughs> and, but when I really kind of looked back, the tally is I had a higher kill rate than they did. <laughs> well, you have to have death to have drama. Right, exactly. In and yeah. Maybe I told everyone I was running a tea party and I didn't. I don't know. I, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. Yeah. Were they happy with the game? My players were always happy. Sometimes the visitors weren't, but that's because that isn't what they were used to. Right. And they wanted to just come kill and smash and break things. So that's really an issue of communication. Not necessarily your fault at the right, time. Right, just, it just wasn't yeah. clear, I guess, right. what I ran, so... I ran a, well, I, I was not the head storyteller, but I was on the staff of a Star Trek mush for a short period of time. Uh, the game didn't really make it because the, the guy who was the head storyteller, he got a job or something, and I, I don't know, anyway, it all kind of fell apart administrationally and, and closed. But Which happens to a lot of role-playing games. It happens to a lot of role-playing games. And it happens to a lot of mushes since you're not talking to someone face-to-face. Right. They just don't, one day, don't log on. Ever and you never again. find out what happened. Right. right. Well, uh, we were we said we were running a Star Trek game, but what we were really running was uh, sort of a um, a character driven drama about life on a starship. And I feel like that was while I very much enjoyed it, and some of our other players enjoyed it. There was also I definitely look back and I think you know at that time period that wasn't Star Trek. Right. Later Star Trek and stuff was. Uh, the main characters were static and they would go to a new world every week and the world would change because our static heroes, the Captain Picards, showed up and showed them that what they were doing was wrong and helped them correct their ways and stuff. But Picard typically is Picard every single week and right. he doesn't change. Um, and so we were trying, we were kind of flipping that, but in doing so, I think that a lot of players thought they were coming in to play Picard, and what they discovered they were playing was... The planet know, they were visiting. Right. One starship to live or something. It was... Uh, <laughs> hey, and if you'd advertised it as one starship to live, that could have been and if, yeah. game. It is actually very true. Is if, we had, if we had advertised it as sort of... And it wasn't quite soap opera level, but if we had said this is a soap opera-ish, character-driven story based on a starship, I think we would have probably... Um, had much greater success. But in the end, it didn't matter because the guy got a job and, and closed the server down. But and Jobs do ruin most games. It is true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, jobs or um, girlfriends. Girlfriends. Oh, girlfriends are the worst. Yeah. <laughs> or boyfriends. Yeah. Sometimes it's the boyfriends. Yeah, anything that draws anybody away from the table. Yeah. And the table is the only I, thing that matters. As far as running the game that you say you're running, I guess the first step is what do you say you're running? So let's talk about that. I think... Uh, running the game you say you're running kind of falls into three sort of categories. There's the communication, the interpretation, and the expectation. So let's just go ahead and start with, with communication. Uh, what do you guys think about, uh, as, as the person running the game, what, what do you need to do to communicate you know, the game that you say you're running? What's that mean? What is the game you say you're running? Well, most org LARPs require you to have some sort of... Uh, vision statement for your game. It's called, uh, you know, the venue style sheet or something similar. And I just think that uh, actually putting on that style sheet for people to look at a description of the sorts of plots you're going to be running and maybe even the specific plots you're going to be running 
so that people know what they want to get involved in and what's the source of things that's going to be happening. Doesn't that also open us up to a whole other problem, which is that things like venue style sheets are not easily viewed by players? They do need to be more easily viewed, obviously. Uh, I've been guilty of this myself. You write it, and then you kind of forget about it. Right. And no one ever looks at it. I think that uh, this is something really small, but really simple. I think that games need to have names. And yes. I think the name needs to reflect what the game is. You know, I'm running a, uh, a Supernatural mush right now. Right. And uh, it's it's lost and found, a Supernatural game. You know, like, we, it literally is in the title. Because if you don't have it in the title, like, lost and found, that could be anything. Right. You know, and so, you know, you, you know, have to have what it is in the name. So... What well, let's talk about that. What do you feel like you need to communicate to the player? Uh, the genre, the type of game. If it's a LARP, a mush, mm-hmm. a tabletop game. Um, and then I, 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 I like something a little clever. I know we were talking about you can't be too clever, but you know, like for the for the lost and found game, literally, there's a giant hole in their town that things are getting lost and found in. Oh, I thought the hole got lost. No, but things are coming out of the hole or being dropped into the hole. And uh, so, like, that's exciting, you know. And immediately, and, as soon as somebody enters play, they know, oh, this is it. Lost and found. Yeah. We're losing oh, things if and I, finding yeah, things. Yeah, oh, it's, uh, this is where all my socks go. Yeah. Right, okay. What if it's a tabletop game? What do you? How do you convey to your players, you know, this the game we're about to run? I think if it's a set of friends, you just have a discussion. Like, everybody's sitting down to make characters and talking about the game. You say, hey guys, this is the sorts of stuff we're going to be doing. And that way they can make characters that are suitable to that, and it makes it a little easier for you to see, oh, well, this guy still made a rogue, even though I told him that this isn't a roguey game. So I should probably adjust a little bit. Yeah. We had a, uh, I feel like as a storyteller that with what you just said with the rogue, we had somebody make a character uh, a, a couple of games ago at one of our LARPs and was very much the character was not a survivable character. <laughs> right, yeah. Okay. And I feel like yeah. as a storyteller, sometimes you have to to point out, look, just so you know, that in the game that we are running, the character that you made is probably not going to be around very long just simply because of what it is. You know, in a vampire game, maybe it's a an embraced child. Right. Um, you know, like, in some games, that might be okay. In others, though, you know, just the fact that a little kid was embraced is offensive enough to the vampires in the community that that character wouldn't be long-lived. And it's interesting because I've seen those characters be very successful or killed in their first game. And it just depends on the game style. Right, and that's the thing that the storyteller can talk to you directly about, Mm one-on-one. So we're talking about setting expectations. Right. So what sort of expectations do you convey to your players when at these sort of first conversations? Well, like Carrie said, you're going to say, hey, this is a genre we're going to have. This Make make characters that fit that genre. Uh, Like if it's a political game, don't make characters that are just about smashing because you'll not have anything to do and we'll both have a bad time. And also, if it's a game about smashing, don't make highly political characters and then try to push the game that way because you're not going to have a good time. I think uh, it's about, I guess, 
sort of policing the players to policing maybe a harsh word, but to to help them make the uh, the correct sort of decisions about what characters they make. Absolutely, but I think as important as that is, you have to police yourself. Like encourage your players, police yourself. As the storyteller, you have to hold a line. I said I was going to do this. Do it. You know, create a story bible or whatever you need to do to mm-hmm. stay on target. In what ways, how have you guys policed yourselves? Like, can you give us an example of like where you've, you know, maybe did you, do you have a plot where you started to to go with it and then suddenly went, oh, wait, this is not what we're running. Oh, all the time. Um, in my in my heart of hearts, I'm a werewolf storyteller. And so right now I'm running Vampire in, in LARP and it is so hard to not just delve into that more emotional um, side of werewolf because vampires aren't like that, you know. While, while vampires do have a lot of, you know, like struggling to keep their humanity, that's not the main purpose of the game. The main purpose of the game is political intrigue. It's, you know, backstabbing. Become the prince. Become the prince, yeah. You know, I, I think that there is an emotional component, but it's so different than werewolves. Well, yeah, that's what I meant. I mean, it's, it, it's well, internal. Werewolves are people that are angry. Vampires are people that have their emotions suppressed by fear. Yeah. Me. Yeah. No, absolutely. Which is a yeah. totally different thing. But, you know, it's very, you can't run the same type of game for no. those two types of characters. You know, we've struggled with that some in our first year about trying, mm-hmm. for the vampire game, trying to run games in which we emotionally engaged players, but they, the plots were too werewolfy, and that's as much my fault as it's oh, yours. Well, it's, I, I think it's just, I, I think that falls back onto also, though, that storytellers and wizards and... Uh, uh, dungeon masters need to also run the game they want to run. Yes, there's something to that. If because you're outside of your genre... Or your, your comfort zone, yes. or even just your likes. Yes. You know what? If you're like, I hate Dungeons and Dragons... Don't run it. Don't run it, because you're not going to have a good time, and then your players aren't going to have a good time. Right. Players can tell. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of times they can tell, because I've been sitting at the table where the guy's like, I really hate Dungeons and Dragons, but that's what you all want to play. <laughs> yeah, and you're like, oh. Sometimes they just say it. <laughs> I think another piece to this too is this idea of of also recognizing. Okay, I've as a storyteller, I have conveyed to my players this is the game that that I believe I am running. Uh, but sometimes you end up with with a player base that maybe is okay with playing what you're running, but maybe they're wanting to play something a little bit different sometimes too. Um, do you feel like you know that can be part of the communication as well? Like, can you change what you say you're running to to let your players have more fun? Well, I think that if we're going to call it communication, we have to recognize that that's a two way street. Yes. If they're drifting the game in a certain direction, you need to acknowledge that, and even if it means running them in a little bit, you still should acknowledge, hey, this is the sort of stuff they want. These people want more combat in my political game. I should run some combat. Or if you don't want to do that, you get another story person on your staff. Yes. Bring to in a do person that. just to do that for mm-hmm. you. And it can heck, it can be the other way. I've run games where I was like, this is gonna be action adventure. People want to do politics. I need a person who does the politics side. Right. And uh both are valid, but it's a different game. Outside of communication, the, I think the second piece is interpretation. So let's talk about, about that. Carrie, you mentioned earlier, you said that part of determining what you say you're running is genre. So what do we mean by genre? 
genre is such a dirty word because it can mean whatever you want. It's a buzzword. It can be sometimes. Yeah. Genre tends to mean if you've read the books and the feeling of what the book means. The rule books. In the, the rule books. Sometimes, sometimes genre is very simple. It's like, you know, this is a Western. This is science fiction. And then some, this is Space LARP. And then sometimes genre is very specific, like the difference between Werewolf the Apocalypse and Werewolf the Forsaken. Um, very, very different. What was that huff for? I was just, I hate when genre is like 900 pages. Right. It doesn't have to be 900 pages, but... Well, Eck, even the, the title of Werewolf was always a savage uh, role play. So it tells you something right there. Right. The trouble with genre is that everyone interprets it differently. Yes, so, absolutely. Genre is kind of like the Bible. Right? <laughs> In a way, it is. Basically, I guess the thing with genre is that I'm doing it right and you're doing it wrong. I think there's a <laughs> part, of the, part of the reason why that happens is because... As these role-playing games age, first of all, your expectations are set by storytellers that you've had in the past. Absolutely. And even sometimes, and I think I've seen this especially true with Werewolf, because those books were always sort of designed to be open to interpretation. Right. So, for example, in TGN, which y'all were in for years, they ran Werewolf a very specific way. Right. And when I was in the old cam, they ran it a different way. Now doesn't bother me to change because it was pretty clear when I joined y'all's game that it was a little different. Right. But there's still conflicts because TGN people didn't use like multiple deed names and a lot of other games did. Right. Uh, Obi-Wan people didn't is my understanding. But they I did didn't play in one world by night. So they I did know. some. Uh, and those little differences can be huge to people. Right. But it can also be indicative of an entire different genre that you think you're playing but you're not. Part of interpretation is interpreting genre and and I guess then maybe educating the players of your game just what you think genre is. Right. Why is it good to lean into genre? Well, I think it goes into running the game you say you're going to. If I say I'm running a vampire game, I should be using vampire genre, not just from the explicitly the vampire role-playing game books, but like uh, fiction Right. People should be able to recognize the game as vampire, even if they've never played vampire before. I'm, I'm going to go off track just a second. Okay. But okay. It, it does have to do with genre. Okay. Every once in a while, my eight-year-old daughter, Ryan and I's daughter, Dakota, yes. has to be at the beginning of game when we, when we do pre-game and then one of us will drive her to the babysitter. Right. So she, she knows just enough to know that we run a vampire game. Okay. So she's decided on several several occasions that she's going to run a vampire LARP for everybody in the room. Not a bad idea. And usually what happens is she tells everyone, okay, you're all vampires and you have to go to Walmart. <laughs> I've played and, in that vampire game. <laughs> <laughs> but like, she'll, she'll tell everyone, but, but you can't go outside when it's daylight. Because you're vampires. Right. Like, the basic vampire genre she gets. Right. So even an eight-year-old has some idea. Right. Can grasp the concept of genre. She has an interpretation of what vampire genre is. What are some of the problems of leaning into genre? Well, sometimes if you adhere to it too strongly, you remove a lot of player choice. Uh, Characters are individuals, and they're not going to adhere to genre perfectly. And they shouldn't. 
They well, that would be their, boring. Yes, they, they should all be a little different. Uh, you can obviously take it too far. You know, we call them fish mouks at, you know, and vampire, people who are just being silly. Right. Uh, you know, everything should have a touch of tragedy in vampire because that's the genre. But if you tell people they can't have a character that's happy, like tell them that is not a viable concept in my game to be happy at all, then you're, you're robbing them of a choice that they may have made. I think sometimes a problem can happen when you uh, lean so hard into genre that you actually twist it into something else. I played in a Star Wars tabletop game once where we played for two or three months every Friday night, you know, playing, and it was a lot of fun. And then all of a sudden we discovered that the bad guy that we were hunting that we thought was this evil, dark Sith Lord uh, was actually a demon. Uh... And, of course, the very, you know, demons in Star Wars, like, that seems incredibly out of genre. Right. Right? That does not, yeah. it doesn't feel like that fits. And our, when we called our storyteller on it, his response was to tell us that demons absolutely do exist in Star Wars because in The Empire Strikes Back, one of the characters says, then he'll see you in hell. So if there's a hell... Then there's demons. There has to be demons, right. And, and But is that, you know, that's leaning so much into the literalness of the genre that it actually breaks the genre. Yeah. And that can, and that can happen if we, if we read too heavily into it as well. You could say he was being too clever. <laughs> you certainly <laughs> yeah. could say he was being too clever. I'll also point out that that game fizzled shortly thereafter. Because at the moment when you realize that, oh, this is not the game I thought it was. This is not the game that he said he was running. I'm not interested in that game that he's running. Right. Yes. That's right. I've played in Star Wars games that I had a lot of fun at, but there would be huge sections where they were leaning so hard into the genre because I had to know actually how to pilot an X-Wing. You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) And we couldn't just hand wave all that. I'm like, look, I've got a pilot skill. I pilot. (laughs) Well, what exactly are you doing? I'm like, I don't want to play Elite Dangerous. I want to play Star Wars. (laughs) So how do you teach your genre, your interpretation of the genre, to your players so that they know what game you're running? Well, you have to be talking to them constantly and listening. Because you you can't really do that at at pre-game. No. You know I mean? We were talking about how... How you can, you know, at character creation, just have a conversation. Look, this game's not really going to be about thieves, so you might not want to play a rogue. Yes. Right? You've set them up. That's the groundwork. Right. Um, And then if they still want to play a rogue, well, it's that whole, you know, you've done your due diligence. You've let them know, look, it's a vampire game. If you play an embraced seven-year-old, you're probably not going to make it very long. Like, you've set, and and then if they still choose to play the child, okay, that's what they've chose to play, but they're not going to make it very long. Um, but how do you, you can't really have that conversation while they're making characters. Okay, today let's talk about what I think Dungeons and Dragons is. Right. So how do you teach your genre to your players? I think you make uh, your choices obvious. Like, hey, these, <clears throat> these bad guys are like this. So people figure it out. Oh, well, uh, we're fighting this sort of monster that is making these sorts of decisions. And it shows them these are the sorts of characters, these are the sorts of plots, these are the sorts of decisions. Every day you should be reinforcing that. When they see a plot, they should recognize it. Oh, this is an emotional plot in which we're going to investigate somebody's life. And while you can contrast that, people should know what sorts of plots you run. You're teaching them your game every day. How you respond to their downtimes, 
how your NPCs react. Everything teaches them your genre and your game every day. Or even just how you actually run a scene with them. Yes. Like, I tend to either in Mush or in LARP, I'll, I'll do a small, all right, guys, we're going to, you know, you guys are coming into this house to convince this old couple to move out. Do a, a recap of what the of, scene of they what, asked you for was. Right. And then I go, and you guys realize this is an old couple that has been living here happily for 50 years. So what you're you saying do? that the way you set the scene and the amount of description you use for different elements. For example, in a combat game, I might not describe the bystanders very close and carefully. Right. But in a game in which I want to show the impact of my actions against yes. people in the background, I will say there's a there's a little girl and boy here who are who playing are in the park and they're now. crying because your group has rampaged through there. It's kind of like how when you're running a scene, security cameras come and go, not based on <laughs> not based on whether or not the the location would have security cameras, but more based on whether or not you want to run all of the side quests for them to erase the footage. <laughs> and it tells them what kind of game. But do it tells I them need to do this? Do I need to check for security cameras every time I roll up to the bad guy's house? Or, you know, like, is my storyteller going to constantly be screwing me over with security camera footage because yeah. that's the game they're running and that's a fine game but you have to let them know that's the sort of game i, I have another friend he was talking about how that he hates gotchas okay. because characters what's, what's a gotcha to him it's like the security camera footage characters know if they for example have a security skill that security cameras exist right so if the character says are there security cameras here? Your answer is almost always going to be yes. So he can go disable security cameras. Right. Because he's put security on his sheet for a reason. He wants to use it. Right. But then if nobody has security and nobody asks, you should just hand wave it most of the time. Because those characters know their jobs. They know what they're doing. And you shouldn't try to trick them. Now, there's moments when it's appropriate. If they make... Huge, egregious errors. Like, we have a huge fight in the middle of the park when people are around. Yeah, okay, there's, there's cell phone footage, there's stuff like that. But that's not a gotcha. That's reasonable. Right. Now, a gotcha is not the same thing as a fooled you, right? They're related, I don't know. That's, they're, they're, uh, that, that's tricky, you know. There's a, there's a fine line. All, fool, too many fooled people... Fooled Jews are more clever. Uh, we have to avoid cleverness sometimes. sometimes. That's my theory. Sometimes. Right. Uh, so with all of this going on, with your version of genre combining with your players' versions of genre and, and, and the other players' version of genre and the other players' version of genre, uh, along with whatever the book says the genre is, along with if you're in an org, you know, along with what the organization says genre, how do you maintain focus? There's so much genre bouncing around how do you stay focused the best advice that i am terrible about following is is to have a story bible take really good notes and maintain them and read over them and when i have done that it's worked very well i had a a very fun exalted campaign that ran for like three or four years and i took notes after every game and i did all those things you're supposed to do and so from beginning to end we had a solid continuity in which there were not that many errors. There was not a lot of people sitting around going, uh, NPC Bob, uh, I don't remember who that is, or <laughs> the game didn't change halfway through. It was the same game because I looked at my notes, I took notes, 
And by the end, we were running the same game that we started with. Right. Uh, I've not always done that, and it has always let the focus slip. There was a time when I had a small 3x5, it was like an index card sized notebook, and I just kept it in my pocket, and every time I ran something in a game, I would write down what I ran, and then that way, you know, when the storytellers came back together, or when players asked me questions later, um, I would always be able to know what I said. But I've also got, I've, I've also found there's sometimes there's little secrets to that too, if you don't have time to take notes. Name, <laughs> name NPCs that you worry their name's going to come back later to haunt you, but you've got to have a name on the fly for, um, you know, because sometimes players will do something that will result in them interacting with someone you never expected them to interact right. with. Quick, I've got to have a name for them. Well, you know what? They are always named after people I graduated high school with. Every that explains time. why there's no more than 88 NPCs in that's any right. game. That's right. Because <laughs> I went to a small high school. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but but it, it helps, though, because then typically I remember that because I remember I went to high school with this person. So. And at the very least, you have a basic personality you can right. use. Right, if you yeah. need to. If yeah. I need to, yeah. yeah. You know, I, I talked to another storyteller, uh, and what he did was is he came up with around 200 NPCs before every game, and he put them on note cards. And then any time that any random person they encountered, uh, like he needed somebody, he would pull the card out, at random usually. Right. Here's the random person. And then as they're running the scene, he would make a note on the card. And then he would put it in a different box. Because these are the ones that have been used. These have not been used. And so then he could review the NPCs in the box... And they would have little notes made on their cards. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That is far more organization than I'm capable of. <laughs> but it is inc- Absolutely. incredibly cool. Though. It is. We it need is. somebody like that on our staff. Yeah, we do. <laughs> what we've started to do uh, for, for the LARP that the three of us run that I think works really well too is we have a Facebook group that's... Well, you do that with one of your mushes as well. Yeah, one of the mushes as well. And um, But the mush we tend to do, hey, let's, let's plot things... And the uh, the the LARP one we use more for review. Hey, these are the notes of what happened last game. Post what you ran. Post what you ran. I have a question on the on the thing that Ryan ran. Can you clarify? And that way you can always go back to it. Because yeah. the players are certainly using Facebook against you. Oh, so <laughs> so maybe it's time. And to remember, start. it's never against you. Right, right. It's not an adversarial relationship as much as the old uh, <laughs> player, the old ST at the table likes to think it is. <laughs> I don't know. I've met a few players that I think were coming to get me. Well, I had yeah, a chair but that was in real life. life. Yeah. yeah, that's, that's real life that's stuff. That's adversarial. To be fair, you were a woman storyteller, so you have it coming. Wow. That's what we were taught, right? <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, you were running that tea party game, and you didn't have a clave tree at all. Right. <laughs> so that was so. So communication and interpretation. But then the last piece of running the game, you say you're running is expectation. Uh, And I think expectation kind of means uh, not just what are your expectations as a storyteller, but what are the expectations of the players? Uh, You know, and and these are a lot of times, these expectations are based on what you've said you're going to run or what they think you're going to run. Well, I think that obviously the first thing you do is if you ask for character histories, which especially in LARP and sometimes even in uh, good tabletop games, you should ask for a history from them, and then you should read it. And then you should have a process in which you say is the, to approve that so that you have a communication with them. Because sometimes somebody asks for something that's out of genre, but the concept isn't bad, 
just their way of putting it. Uh, the, the best use of this I've heard is, somebody wanted to play a robot in a fantasy game. Well, the guy sat down and talked to him, and he said, well, I don't really want to play a robot. I want to play this unemotional person. Okay, that's, that's fine. We can work with that. Right. right. Sometimes what they ask for isn't the piece of it that they, that they truly want. Right. And it, you can push each other towards a, a solution. What's really nice about Mush is that you have to actually submit a background with your sheet. You cannot, in most games anyway, you cannot get into play unless you put in a background. Which is an advantage to Mush is yeah. that when you show up to a, to a tabletop game or a LARP, you show up expecting to be able to sit down for an hour or two and make your character, have it approved, and then after that couple of hours, you're going to get to play for a couple of hours. Right. And with Mush, there's this sort of understood relationship that you're going to show up, you're going to make your character, and then it's going to be 48 hours before you get approved and you can go into play. And so but that creates this opportunity for the back and forth of, of histories. And not only does it uh, create between the staff and that player, it also gives that player and the other players time to chat, get a little bit more comfortable, like on the pub channel or whatever, and go, hey, when you get into play, I want to be in your introductory scene. Yeah, that's like, really cool. You know, and so, like, that's that's really something neat about it. And it lunch. creates opportunities for uh, um, recruitment yeah. as well, because maybe they're like, my, if, if it's a vampire mush, my coterie needs another member. You know, what are you thinking about, what character are you thinking about making? Because I could use another coterie member. And that gives them something to do as soon as they end yep. the game. Yep. Do right. we need to figure out ways to do that better in LARP? Uh, a lot of people do submit histories ahead of time, and some games even require it, but that moment where you get to meet everybody without game, right. that can be very useful. I think a lot of that problem is that expectation of creating the character and then starting play all in one session. And that happens not just in LARP, but in tabletop as well. And that sometimes can make the, the history thing difficult. It's hard to show up to your very first game with a history because you don't always know exactly how your character's going to play. Well, or you don't know the genre of the game. Right. Or you think you do. Right. And it's a little different, and there's things you have to change. Mm -hmm. And suddenly, if I hung my whole character on this idea, and they say, hey, uh, there's no computer hacking in this game. We're not going to do that. Right. You're like, but I wrote a computer hacker. Right. Sorry, you need to completely start over. And that's pretty disheartening. I've seen people leave games because they're like, I wanted to play this. I spent two weeks planning on this, and no one told me different. Right. It's tricky. It's, you've got to have a way of communicating. Well, and there's got to be a possible. give and take on both sides. There does have to be give and take on both sides. How else do you guys think we can mold the, the expectation of, of those who come to our games to fit the game we say we're running? Whew. It's tricky. <laughs> that is tricky. <laughs> I mean, it's. I think it's one of the biggest failings of, of games, especially LARPs. Uh, that communication. It's really hard. Uh, it should be simple. I've seen people do things like have a packet where they're like, hey, read this. It's 10 pages and it tells you everything you need to know. Or they That's have a lot of reading. It is a lot of reading. Or they Before have. Before you even get to start. <laughs> or they have like a player that will sit down and talk to them beforehand. Not a storyteller, not a, not a tabletop person, but just, you know, hey, Joe Blow's really good at this game. He's been doing it forever. Let him talk to you so you kind of get a better feeling. And so they get a little bit of a different 
perspective perspective of the game. I think that's really useful. We should also be aware of actions that that players take. When they enter the game, like how they interact with us when they arrive as players, I think can also set sort of their expectation of what the game is like as well. Um, If if a player shows up and is... And when they first talk to the storyteller, the, the storyteller is kind of disinterested or busy doing other things or not really, you know, it, it immediately tells them, okay, from this game, expect little to no interaction with the storyteller. Right. Don't expect the storyteller to be interested. Um, and that's especially, especially true in LARP. Um, and, and I think, but I think that that is an ex- you're setting an expectation. Okay. Expect the storyteller to not care. So I need to go out and play what I'm playing and play it hard if I want something to do. And, well, that's not my favorite. That is a that is a choice. And you know what? If you've got say a LARP with a hundred people in it, and you've got a staff of five, right? It's really difficult to give individual people the type of attention that you really want them to have. It does teach them that they have to play big, right? I think we also need to be aware of actions the characters keep taking. For example, if I'm running a, a Dungeons and Dragons game, and Carrie's barbarian keeps stopping in the town to try and pick up and to try and ask another an NPC out on a date. Then you need to run a date. I need to recognize what Carrie's asking me for is is a date. Right. Like I mean, in, not in real life. We don't do no, that. Not no, anymore. No. Gross. <laughs> Once you have kids, that's done. But Or like if you recognize that a player, it doesn't even have to be for a relationship thing. If you notice a player, you know, okay, this character keeps going to uh, to this gun store to, and keeps buying gun parts. I, re- I need to recognize that they are showing an interest in building their own mega gun or whatever. You know, like... you or. Um, there, are, there are actions characters can take that can clue us in on what that player's expectation is. Absolutely. Uh, to go along with that, though, especially in uh, situations where there are scenes that the storytellers are not involved in. So this isn't so much tabletop. This is more in mush and in LARP. Is if you have a if your character is doing something, I'm going to the gun store and collecting gun parts. You have to let the person in charge of the game know that. Right. There's well, some games that, that require that you to post I, I, I post something about, hey, this is what I've done. Like a scene summary? A scene summary. Uh, That's common in, of, in mushes. Right. And there's a lot of LARPs that require after-game reports. Not only do you have to tell them what you did in-game, you have to talk about some out-of-game stuff, too. Like, hey, what were you involved in? Who did you talk to? Were there any issues? Uh, what... What deficiencies did you see? Right. What What did we do right? And when you have that communication that's explicit and direct, it can be very useful. Sometimes I think that something we really miss in, as storytellers, is, is a big opportunity that's missed, is we always ask for, uh, in, in some games they call them like downtime reports, yes. which is tell me the storyteller what it is that your character is doing in preparation for the game that is happening Friday night. Yes. Right? So my character goes to the store and buys eggs because he's going to cook breakfast for everybody. So you send that in a downtime, right? I'm mm-hmm. just a silly example. But we put all this inf- this sort of effort into finding out what they're doing in preparation, and we don't really find out what they're doing 
afterwards. Like there's not like what you're saying, like a post game report. Like what? Tell us what you what happened at game. What your character did. Tell us what you know. What you learned. Those things. Um, and I feel like we, it's a it's something that we miss. I think the most important thing is just to keep the golden rule in mind. What's the golden rule, Carrie? Treat others as you want to be treated. Oh, it's not do unto before. Yeah, no. It's oh, as you want them to treat you. I thought the golden rule was that you could uh, ignore the the rules found in the rule book at any time if it serves the story better for them to not be used. I thought the golden rule was who has the gold makes the rules. Maybe the golden rule is just that uh, you need to run the game that you say you're running. <laughs> well... I think, I think the real thing here is that communication is everything. It goes in both directions. Uh, and, and something that I've really come to realize over the years is that every decision you make in game is telling your players something. And every action they take is telling you something. You need to make sure that your choices are deliberate and in line with the idea that you had when you started the game. But you have to be flexible. But you do have to be flexible. As a player and as a storyteller. Yes. We should always be leaning into each other. It's a collaborative effort, even if it's a competitive game. Fair. Wow. That was so deep. I know. I probably read it somewhere. <laughs> All right. Well, let's go ahead and drop out of combat rounds. Let's do game wrap. I want to let everybody who's listening at home or in the car or wherever they're at that they can find us online at honorrollpodcast.com we're of course on iTunes and Stitcher and a bunch of other places like that you can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash honorrollpodcast or you can email us at hosts at honorrollpodcast.com tell us what you think Tell us why you think Jason is the favorite or that you don't think Carrie is the legend. Hey! Or you could just be mad at me because I'm the curmudgeon. Whatever you want to do, you can do it. Shouldn't they rate us on something? Absolutely. If you feel like giving us a rating on iTunes or any of the other podcast forums, we would love it because that helps us reach more people. And I would like you to leave a comment that says, Ryan is not as tall as he thinks he is. Why? Because it's funnier. Is it, though? I think so. This sounds like a whole other episode. It is another episode. Another episode. Well, before Jason has any further episodes, I'm going to go ahead and give out some XP. Jason, you get 5 XP for attendance, uh, but then you are docked 6 XP because uh, you're just not as funny as you used to be. (laughs) And Carrie, you're going to get 4 XP for um, sitting next to me and helping tolerate Jason. Someone's got to. All right. (laughs) All right. Well, until next time, I'm Ryan. I'm Carrie. I'm Jason. And remember, the only way to win at a role-playing game is to have fun. Join us next week when the topic we cover is the new Bob Ross mush called Happy Trees. I'd play that. and opinions that were on this podcast belong to just those folks who were on this podcast and to nobody else. 
All of the music was courtesy of Kevin McLeod from Incompetech.com. Thank you.